Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. And uh, you know what? I love all things tech. And I'm recording this episode the week of September 9th, 2019. That's the same week that Apple held its annual event hyping new iPhones and iPads and related technology. So, of course, I decided to be contrary and to do an episode about the history and evolution of Google Android. This is really going to be part one, the first half of Android's existence. And, you know, Apple can grab the attention of the entire tech journalism world for a couple of hours with these annual events. When they hold them, they stream them live, people will stop their daily rituals and watch this stuff. And Android continues to be the dominant operating system in the smartphone world all the while. Estimates vary, but analysts say that Android accounts for somewhere between 70 and 85% of the operating systems on all the mobile devices on the market. Now, that's a pretty big range, 70 to 85, and it shows how frustrating it is when you start to look at things like market share. It all depends upon the analysis firm that does it. So I don't know precisely how much Android makes up on the uh, smartphone mobile operating system world, but I know that it is the majority, far, far greater than iOS. Now, full disclosure, I use a Google Android phone. My current phone as of this recording is a Pixel 2 XL that is very much ready to be replaced, but Google has not yet made the Pixel 4 available as I'm recording this. But I'm not a Google fanboy. While I prefer Android to iOS, I am also quite critical about Google, the company. And the history of Android has some dark stuff in it, which we will get to in our next episode in particular. Also, this episode is in no way, shape, or form sponsored by Google. It's completely independent. Now, to understand the origins of Android, it's first helpful to think back before either Android or iOS had debuted. So back in, say, the 90s, back then, most folks, if you had a phone, a mobile phone, it was a regular cell phone and not a smartphone, probably not even a feature phone. There were some smartphones that were on the market, but nearly all of them aimed at executives as sort of the niche market. And there was a lot of emphasis on productivity features, you know, things like calendars and email. Uh, Some cell phones had a little bit of internet browsing capability. Nearly all of it was just text-based. And there was little opportunity to develop apps for phones, largely because of carrier restrictions, handset restrictions, and some of the quirks of the various operating systems out there. Those operating systems at the time were dominated by Windows Mobile, Symbian, and chief of all the productivity smartphones, BlackBerry. Now, the story of Android is largely wrapped up in the story of Andy Rubin. It's a story that I think Google would love to redact parts of, considering the allegations against Rubin that relate to sexual misconduct. But let's focus on what happened many years ago before we get into all of that salacious material in the second episode. Rubin studied computer science at Utica College in New York. He graduated in 1986. 
He worked as a software engineer for a company in New York. Then he went over to Switzerland for a little bit and worked as an engineer there. And he met an Apple engineer named Bill Caswell, who then offered him a job at Apple. So Ruben accepted that job, and he joined Apple as a software engineer in 1989. In 1992, he would join a spinoff that kind of left out of Apple it was called General Magic. General Magic was originally called the Paradigm Project when it was still part of Apple. And the goal was to develop a small handheld computing device that could also serve as a phone. Essentially, it was an early attempt to build an Apple smartphone. The idea was a good one, but a little bit ahead of its time. The company worked on developing products like operating systems and programming languages, all the stuff that would be necessary to make such a device actually work. But General Magic was unable to find much success, partly because Apple would end up competing against it with the ill-fated Newton device. And since John Scully, who was then the CEO of Apple, was also on the board for General Magic, a lot of people at General Magic saw this as, as betrayal, as Scully looking to see what General Magic was up to and then racing to beat them to the punch with Apple. General Magic would essentially close up shop in 2002, and all of its assets were sold off by 2004. But Ruben wasn't around when that actually happened. He didn't stick around to see General Magic crumble. He had left the company way back in 1995 and joined a different company, that being Web TV. And that was founded by a couple of other General Magic employees, Steve Perlman and Phil Goldman. Microsoft would then acquire the company in 1997 for the princely sum of $425 million dollars. Now, during his tenure at Web TV, Ruben was listed as the person who registered the .tv top-level domain name, which I find pretty amusing, because at the time, no one really knew who Ruben was, or, of course, no one knew where he was going at that point. And the fact that he had registered .tv was something of a shock to the government of Tuvalu, is an island nation which expected to have .tv as its country code, you know, like .uk is for the United Kingdom. This caused a bit of a dust-up, and eventually Web TV was stripped of ownership of the .tv domain name, and it was handed over to Tuvalu. The country actually really depends upon revenues from other entities that are registering second-level domains from .tv. That ends up being a viable source of revenue for the nation. I think it's kind of interesting that they are largely dependent, not entirely. I don't mean to suggest that they get all their revenue from people registering .tv domains, but it provides a significant amount to their yearly revenue, which I find interesting. Ruben stuck with Microsoft for another couple of years before he left in 1999 to co-found a new company called Danger. And he did that along with Joe Britt and Matt Hershenson, this company also focused on developing an operating system and some hardware for a sort of proto-smartphone. The focus was to offload a lot of the storage needs for the phone onto company servers. So in other words, this was an early example of cloud storage, at least early in terms of consumers using a device that actually relied on cloud storage. So instead of worrying about filling up the small amount of memory space you might have on such a, a piece of hardware, 
all your stuff would be stored in the cloud. So you could have a lot more images than you would be able to store on, say, a handheld device. The company built out a phone that had a screen that would swivel and rotate up to reveal a physical keyboard underneath it. So when the screen was in place, like it, when it was folded down, essentially, then it looked like a smartphone with a touchscreen interface. But then you would push uh, the screen just a little bit on one side, it would swivel and rotate and snap out, and then you would have the keyboard revealed underneath. And this would end up really setting this device apart. It was called the hip top when it was uh, under danger. And it really set the hip top apart from other phones on the market, which were mostly in either flip phone or a candy bar phone form factors. Candy bar being that solid little brick of a phone. T-Mobile would partner with Danger and then rebrand the hip top as the phone called the Sidekick. It's an incredibly popular phone of its time, and it really caught on with a younger demographic. It was very popular because it was great for texting, which was starting to become a dominant means of communication at the time. One of the really innovative things about the hip top slash sidekick wasn't technological at all. It was the business model. Danger was banking on the phone's services as the revenue generator for the company, rather than selling the hardware for a profit. So companies like Apple were known for selling devices with high profit margins. So they were selling the products for much more than it cost to make them. A lot of people talk about Apple products commanding a premium price, that you might look at an Apple product and you're paying you know, $200 for the name Apple on top of whatever the device is worth. Uh, that's being a bit dramatic, but Apple is known for having pretty big profit margins on its, on its various products. Danger was going a different route. They were aiming to sell the hip top at a price that was really close to what it cost to make the darn things in the first place. So essentially selling it for almost the same amount of money that it, it cost to manufacture them. Danger would instead focus on making money by sharing service revenues with T-Mobile. So this was more of a long tail approach to generating revenue. The idea being, we'll make money off people using this device rather than people buying the device. The HipTop had some basic internet features built into it, including a simple browser, and that simple browser happened to have Google set as the default web search engine, which endeared the HipTop to Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin, both of whom were often seen using sidekicks for quite some time. The HipTop debuted in 2002, and the following year, Rubin would leave the company to co-found yet another company. This one would focus on building out a robust operating system for a true smartphone. This company was called Android. Danger, by the way, would later get acquired by Microsoft long after Rubin had already left the company. And there was an incident in 2009 in which Microsoft lost all of that stored data for Sidekick users. The servers that had all that data failed, and it was all gone. So unless you were one of the users who had paid for a specific app that lets you store local backups of some, but not all, of your Sidekick data, you lost all that stuff. This would become sort of a, a message of warning that cloud storage is not always foolproof. So sometimes people point to that and say, yeah, do you remember Sidekick? 
just because you store it in the cloud doesn't mean it's going to be safe forever. Which is true, but the same thing is also true if you save stuff locally. Stuff can happen to local drives too. It's just that you feel like you have more control when it's in your possession. So I think for some people, it's more about the sense of surrendering control than anything else. Anyway, let's get back to Android. Ruben's co-founders at Android were Chris White, Nick Sears, and Rich Miner. Although you almost always only hear about Ruben when it comes to the founding of Android. They had a pretty prescient view of what a smart device should entail. They thought of creating a device that would use uh, location-based services that would tie your experience of using the device into what was going on in the world around you. So sort of a geotagging, geolocation uh, integration with the use of the device. And that the device itself would learn more about what you preferred as you used it. So the more you used it, the more it would tailor itself to the way you used it. It would become simpatico with you. So it sounded like the end goal was to make a device that would get a deeper understanding of the person using it and then adjust its performance accordingly, which was the stuff of science fiction back in 2003. No one really was convinced that you could actually do such a thing. Ruben would reveal in a 2013 speech that originally the team was actually thinking not of smartphones, but an operating system that would be used for digital cameras. But they also recognized that digital cameras were starting to give way to less powerful but more pervasive cell phone cameras. You know, people were starting to use their cell phones to take pictures of stuff. And it just was, it was evident that Yes, digital cameras are capable of taking much better photos than cell phones, at least the cell phones of the time. But better isn't always the most important element. Sometimes convenience is more important and accessibility and multifunctional use. And so for that reason, they decided they would pivot away from creating an operating system for digital cameras and instead create one for cell phones. And they thus decided to create a mobile phone operating system. Now, Ruben's goal was to build out a mobile operating system that would be open to any and all software developers. He really wanted a rich, robust environment for apps of all shapes, sizes, and purposes. He wanted to take an approach similar to personal computers. He didn't want it to be walled off and siloed. He wanted it to be a playing ground where lots of different people could contribute apps to that ecosystem because everybody would benefit from that. So Ruben hired a small team of engineers to start developing the operating system, and he had made a pretty decent fortune in his work at the various companies he had worked for. So he used some of that to fund this fledgling company because they literally had no product to sell for a couple of years. They had no way of generating revenue, so he he largely funded it out of pocket with you know some investors adding some extra money in here and there. One decision he made very early on was to use an open source approach to developing the operating system. And I've talked a lot about open source, but here's a quick rundown of the basic philosophy. Essentially, an open source project is transparent, meaning anyone can look into it and see what makes it tick. So in the case of open source software, you're talking about having access to the code to see how the code is constructed and how it makes the app do whatever it does, or in this case, the operating system. With many open source projects, 
uh, often you are allowed to freely download, tweak, and then re-upload code to share with a community. So you could take the basic code for an operating system and say, you know, this is good, but it could use X, Y, and Z features. And I'm going to build those out and incorporate them into the code of this operating system. And then I'll upload it as a new version. And that's a way that you can actually work within the developer community of an open source project. So in this way, the team of developers expands from whatever in-house group you happen to have to what amounts to the entire world becomes your developer community. Anyone can contribute to the code. People can add functionality. People can patch vulnerabilities. They can make offshoot programs, all that sort of stuff. Now, I should add, not every open source project allows for all of these things, but the basic philosophy is that a community of developers can contribute to a project's progress. When it works well, you end up with really rapid innovation and evolution, and you aren't dependent upon any one person or group's work. Now, when it comes to Android, the way this would play out is that you would have an internal group of developers who would create the uh, basic version of the Android operating system, whatever version that might be at that given time. They would finish this, completely in-house, and then only after publishing the operating system, pushing it out to users, would they then make the code available for others to download and tweak. So this was sort of a hybrid approach. You would have an in-house team developing versions of this operating system, and then you would have the release of the open source code to the community afterward. So... The team got to work establishing the foundation for this operating system, and from 2003 to 2005, they began to design what would be a web-connected operating system capable of supporting apps. In 2005, Android would solicit investors for funding with a business plan dependent on this mobile OS model. The company got a lot of attention in general, but it was Google that would sweep them up. Google's founders were actually really keen to establish a stronger presence in the mobile world. Google's revenue depends upon ads. And typically, uh, you know, it's largely built on the, the search engine service that Google offers. Google's business isn't search. Google's business is advertising. So Page and Bren had the goal of getting Google's search engine on more phones as quickly as possible because already people were starting to get the sensation that mobile com computing was going to be the next big thing, that people were going to start transitioning from using laptops and desktops to mobile devices. And this is still years before smartphones would become a mainstream consumer product. People could see the writing on the wall and they said, well, if we want to get ahead of this, we want to make sure that the Google search engine is the default search engine on as many platforms as possible because that's where we generate our revenue. Now, on July 11th, 2005, Google acquired Android for an undisclosed but presumably princely sum. The general figure that's bandied about is $50 million, which isn't bad at all. The acquisition was kept pretty quiet at the time. In fact, I found a CNET piece about the acquisition that was written in 2007, which was two years after it actually had happened. Google was keeping the smartphone project it was working on under wraps. Now, while Ruben's team was working on building out the operating system, Google itself was searching for a hardware manufacturer to supply the actual physical handset that would be the first to host this new operating system. Google wasn't going to build it itself. It needed to find a manufacturing partner. So Google selected a company out of Taiwan called HTC. 
And here's a quick note about Taiwan. Now, if you listen to my recent episode about why everything is made in China, you'll remember that I mentioned that in 1912, a government called the Republic of China established itself as the new leadership structure for what had previously been an imperialist nation. In 1949, the People's Republic of China, which was a different thing, you had the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China, Well, the People's Republic of China was a communist organization, and still is, and wrested control of China. And many officials with the older government, the Republic of China, would flee to Taiwan. So Taiwan has operated in a sort of nebulous designation, being sort of but not really part of China. Uh, China would argue that Taiwan is very much part of the country. And if you don't agree, then China will not work with you at all. Uh, And that ends up being an issue for a lot of other countries, so they all effectively agree that Taiwan is part of China. Meanwhile, Taiwan is just not so fast there. We really are our own thing. It's a complicated issue. So anyway, this Taiwanese company got to work building a couple of prototype handsets upon which Android would be installed. And I'll have more to say about those in just a minute, but first, let's take a quick break. Okay, so HTC had started out as a computer manufacturer. That would be the Taiwanese company in question. But it had been designing and producing mobile devices since the late 1990s, so it wasn't brand new to this. It had built a touchscreen smartphone in 2000. It had built Windows-based smartphones in 2002. It had also produced PDAs, which are not public displays of affection in this case, but rather personal digital assistance. It's kind of like a smartphone without the phone part. But it would end up being Android that would elevate HTC's status in the smartphone arena, at least for a time. And it was actually something of a risk for HTC. The company had been making Windows Mobile-based phones for a while, and Microsoft and Google weren't exactly best buds. So it was possible that if the Android phone would flop, HTC's involvement might be enough to convince Microsoft to take its business elsewhere, and then HTC would have backed the wrong horse. Now, the company had two basic prototype designs in those early days for the Android phone. One was codenamed Sooner, which sported a small color screen, had a resolution of 320 by 240 pixels, had a physical keyboard that was positioned under that screen, and it kind of looked like a more boxy version of a typical BlackBerry phone. It was all one piece. You had the screen on top and the physical keyboard beneath it. The other prototype, called Dream, was kind of like the old Sidekick design. The handset screen would slide up to reveal a physical keyboard underneath. Now, unlike the Sidekick, the screen slid up. It did not pivot and rotate up. Uh, But it was basically the same concept. Things were progressing at Google, meanwhile, and then in January 2007, Apple would upset the, well, the, the Apple cart by unveiling the upcoming iPhone. And the iPhone design was aesthetically pleasing. It eschewed all the physical keyboard elements entirely. It put the keyboard on the screen, though the iPhone still sported a few physical buttons, I'm sure to Jobs' dismay. It wasn't the first full touchscreen smartphone, but you'd be forgiven for thinking it was, based on how Steve Jobs was promoting it. And it was clearly in a league of its own. It was sleek, and the gesture controls, like swiping or pinch to zoom, got a lot of attention. 
And some companies like BlackBerry and Microsoft largely dismissed the iPhone, at least publicly, stating, yeah, it's a fad, it's never going to take off. But several of the team members at Google paid attention and really reevaluated the progress of Android. According to Chris DeSalvo, who worked on the Android team, the Android OS looked dated in comparison, like it had come from the 1990s. Until Apple unveiled the iPhone, Google had been leaning toward the Sooner handset prototype as the first piece of hardware to support the Android operating system. But the iPhone changed that entirely. It was obvious to everyone at Google that the Sooner-style phone would look too stodgy and too dated next to the sexy iPhone. And so the decision was made to focus on the Dream prototype, which was the one that had the, the sliding screen and the physical keyboard. And they also decided that they would give the Android operating system a bit of an overhaul in the process, which would mean launching Android a little later than they had planned, but the general feeling was that this would help keep the project from being a big flop after Apple's splashy debut. Now, the iPhone would officially launch later in 2007, while Google was still at work on the first Android phone. In fact, Google didn't really officially acknowledge its phone efforts until around November of 2007, which was months after the iPhone had launched, let alone been unveiled. The company led the effort to establish an organization called the Open Handset Alliance, with companies like T-Mobile, Motorola, and Texas Instruments in that alliance. Google would not be ready to launch until late 2008, so a year after the iPhone had come out. The flagship phone was the HTC G1. At least that's what it was called in the United States. In other parts of the world, it was called the HTC Dream. And just take a listen to these amazing specs. The phone had a single-core processor that could run at a blistering 528 megahertz. The phone had 192 megabytes of RAM. The display measured a whopping 3.2 inches on the diagonal with a resolution of 320 by 480 pixels. And yes, I'm being a bit cheeky as I celebrate these specifications because we have come a long way since 2008. The iconic Android character, sometimes called the bug droid internally, was one of several designs that were kind of trying to create a mascot or logo for Android. Irina Block, a graphic artist, would design the logo. She's still with Google today, though now she's a product design lead for Google AI and research. The phone launched with Android version 1.0, which did not have a code name. Neither did its successor, version 1.1. But then with the third version of Android, the third released version, which was confusingly version 1.5, Google would assign dessert names in alphabetical order, so those would become the codenames for the operating system versions. Version 1.5 would thenceforth be known as Cupcake. So we skipped over A and B, and that did not stand for Alpha and Beta, since they were actually real releases of the operating system. They were not internal test builds, as an Alpha and Beta typically would be. But the third version would be called Cupcake, and the naming scheme would continue until the most recent build of Android OS, which was released on September 3rd, 2019. That one is just called Android 10, presumably because finding a dessert name that starts with the letter Q was a little tricky. One thing Android had over the iPhone operating system, which, you know, we'd later call iOS, 
would be a few capabilities like copy and paste and true multitasking. The Android operating system could simultaneously run multiple applications, whereas on the iPhone, you would have to be satisfied with running one application at a time. You could switch between apps on an iPhone, but it would mean that the apps in the background would not be running. They'd essentially be frozen in stasis until activated by the user again. Google's Android was different. And keep in mind that the iPhone didn't include support for third-party apps when it first launched. The G1 slash Dream did. The Android market contained dozens of unique first-of-a-kind Android applications, according to Google. So can you imagine that? Dozens. Again, I'm, I'm being cheeky because, of course, back in those days, it was very slow going. Google included a browser, which predated Chrome, and support for Google services like YouTube and Google Maps was native for the device. The phone had support for 3G cellular service, something the original iPhone lacked, though, to be fair, the second-generation iPhone, the iPhone 3G, would include support for 3G cellular service. That also launched in 2008, so it wasn't like Apple was uh, trailing way behind Android. It's just that they didn't include it with the initial iPhone release. On top of that, Google chose to follow an over-the-air update strategy, which meant that operating system updates would get sent out to all the handsets out there, at least in theory, over cellular data, rather than as a download that you would save to a PC, and then you would transfer over to the phone via a cable. Apple did it that way for a long time. In fact, they would not support over-the-air updates until iOS version 5. Now, the advantages weren't necessarily evident to the mainstream public, but there were a lot of geeks, including me, that felt these features set Android ahead of the competition. Apple would catch up, of course, implementing features in future versions of iOS, but it always seemed like Apple was kind of lagging behind on certain features, perhaps purposefully to make sure that the implementation wouldn't affect the experience that Steve Jobs wanted to create with the handset. Google's approach was more, you know, loosey-goosey with that sort of thing. That being said, Apple was light years ahead when it came to graphic design and aesthetics. The iPhone's design philosophy extended all the way to the icons that you would see on the display. Google's user interface looked like it had been built by and for engineers. It worked, but it wasn't, you know, sexy. And it wasn't quite as intuitive an interface as what Apple had created. There was a bit of a learning curve to Android, which was somewhat smoothed out when handset manufacturers began to create what amounted to special skins for Android to make them more user-friendly. They could do that because, again, the operating system was open source. So handset manufacturers could take that basic version of Android and then tweak it a little bit so it might run a bit better on that particular hardware. The HTC G1 was my first smartphone. I jumped on the Android bandwagon about as early as I could. I had held off getting a smartphone for many reasons. I didn't care for Apple's closed garden approach. And besides, I already used a lot of Google's services like Gmail and Google Docs, so I figured going with Android would make the most sense. These days, I look at all the Google stuff and I think... Man, that's a company that needs to get broken up. But at the time, I was just excited to have a phone that would, at least in theory, work seamlessly with all the services I was already using. More importantly, 
Google would take a fundamentally different approach than Apple. Over at Apple, the smartphone operating system was a jealously guarded property. Only Apple phones could sport iOS. If you wanted to use that operating system, you had to buy a phone from Apple. No one else would be allowed to create a phone running that operating system. In this way, Apple was following the same philosophy it employed with its computer systems, apart from that one shaky period when Steve Jobs wasn't at Apple and the company began to allow Mac clones. Google, however, was going the opposite direction. The open-source Android was available for, at least in theory, any manufacturer to use. So handset manufacturers like Motorola and Samsung began to develop their own handsets that would run the operating system. Moreover, it wasn't tied to specific carriers, although it took a while to get support for all the different carriers. So when the iPhone launched in the United States, Apple had made an exclusivity deal with AT&T. That story could be its own podcast episode, the whole story behind AT&T and Apple exclusivity in the early days of the iPhone. But the point is that for a couple of years in the United States, iPhone users had no option when it came to service providers. It was AT&T or it was nothing. Android would have no such restrictions. But this would introduce other problems. I'll explain more in a second, but first, let's take another quick break. Android Cupcake would provide support for on-screen keyboards, both from Google and from third parties. So this is a case where Google had to catch up to Apple, which had skipped the physical keyboard step entirely. Cupcake also added other features, such as the ability to record video using the handset's camera. Android Donut would add even more features, including support for CDMA networks, which were used by companies like Verizon and Sprint in the United States. So CDMA is one type of cellular phone technology, and then GSM was the other one. Uh, it was You can think of them as two branches of cellular technologies. Most of the world was using GSM, but in the U.S., you also had a couple of networks using CDMA. And once Donut added that support in, it meant that companies like Verizon and Sprint could actually offer Android phones. So at that point, Android could theoretically exist on any compatible hardware on any cellular provider. And that leads into the problem I was mentioning earlier. The main problem was fragmentation, meaning there were several different active versions of Android out on the market at the same time. Some handset manufacturers would augment Android with software of their own so that you'd have a slightly different flavor of Android on Samsung than you might find on Motorola, for example. And that's perfectly legit because, as I mentioned earlier, Android is an open source project. Google set up some rules, however. Anyone who wanted to tweak Android would have to submit it to the Android compatibility program. That would make sure that the build wasn't so different that it would no longer work with key components of the Android ecosystem, like the Play Store or the Google mobile services. So while a company like Samsung could release its own version of Android, it would first have to submit that code to Google to make sure that it could still play nice in the Google sphere overall. And carriers didn't necessarily push out Android updates to users all at the same time. So you might have a handset that's technically capable of running the latest version of Android, but the carrier you are on hasn't distributed the OS update. So you're stuck in an older version. 
then carriers could also include bloatware that would change the nature of Android. This whole fragmentation was a point of frustration not just for users, but also developers who couldn't be certain that their work would be usable by the majority of the Android install base. Developers typically want to take advantage of the best hardware and operating system features that they can, but when there's a lot of fragmentation in an operating system, that becomes difficult to do. This was one of those things that Steve Jobs thought would spell the end of Android. And while it was a point of pain and frustration, it didn't kill the operating system. By 2009, Apple was sticking with AT&T in the US, and Google was trying to get more carriers to offer Android phones on their networks. One big target was Verizon, and Verizon was searching for a good alternative to the iPhone because it still didn't have access to it. So it banked on an interesting alliance. The parties included Verizon, HTC, Motorola, Google, and a little company called Lucasfilm. All right, so the Lucasfilm thing is a little bit misleading. The big contribution that Lucasfilm would make would be to license the name Droid, which it had trademarked from the Star Wars film franchise, and it licensed it to Verizon. Thus, HTC and Motorola would manufacture handsets running the Android operating system for Verizon, which then marketed those phones as the brand Droid. In addition, the handsets were the first to feature Android version 2.0, otherwise known as Eclair. Now, like the old HTC G1, the Motorola Droid, the original Motorola Droid, had a slide-out physical keyboard. And if you preferred, you could use the on-screen keyboard, so you had some options. The phone featured voice recognition technologies like voice search, so you could actually engage the voice search feature, say something into the phone, and it would search for that term for you. The Droid also contributed to the death of another company, and that would be Palm, which was famous for its PDAs back in the good old 90s, Palm had created a smartphone running on WebOS called the Palm Pre and had another version called the Palm Pre Plus that was supposed to run on Verizon's network. But Verizon would largely neglect the Palm Pre Plus, instead focusing its marketing power on the droid, and that helped spell the end for Palm, which would end up getting acquired and then kind of sort of fizzled away and died. Now, you could argue that Verizon got a little bit of comeuppance for all that, because in 2010, Verizon launched a phone from Microsoft called the Kin, K-I-N. Now, remember when I talked about Danger, the company that Andy Rubin co-founded before he moved on to Android? Well, Microsoft had acquired Danger, and then several people from that team had worked on the Kin smartphone. It was meant to be a phone that sort of straddled the gap between cell phone and smartphones, sort of a feature phone, with lots of social media-type applications in mind. But the phone was seen as a lackluster effort, and Verizon would end up discontinuing the sales of the Kin about a month and a half after launching it, and it was a bust. Now, the Droid wasn't a bust. It would become the most popular Android phone in the United States at that time and would help drive Android's success, which reached a level in which the OS became the dominant operating system in the smartphone market. Google began to outpace Apple starting in 2011, with Android available on more phones than Apple's iOS, and it would increase year over year until it reaches the crazy levels it's at today. Now, however, it's very important to note that comparing iOS market share to Android market share is a little bit like comparing apples to oranges. So many apple puns. Well, what I mean by that is that Apple has consistently taken aim at the high-end market 
for its phones. The premium cost for Apple phones drives profits. Google's Android is available across a wide range of smartphones and price points. Google's not concerned about selling expensive phones because Google doesn't sell very many phones at all. It mostly just makes the operating system available. It's more concerned with getting the operating system out there as much as it possibly can. And remember, most of those phones are not coming from Google. The company doesn't really care about how expensive any of those handsets are. So Google continues to make money off the services it provides. So just like in the world of desktops and laptops, the real product Google is selling isn't phones or even operating systems. It's the data of users, people like me and you, especially people who use Android phones, people like me. We're generating so much data that can then be profited from in various ways. And yes, that is not something I am particularly happy about. Sometimes we trade uh, convenience you know, we'll, we'll get convenience and we'll trade off some security and privacy and things like that. And then later on, we'll wonder if we made the right choice and then think we've gone too far. But now we're going down my psyche. Let's get back to Android. Backtracking a little bit, Google unveiled a flagship phone on January 5th, 2010. It was the Nexus One phone, which was manufactured by HTC, just like the G1 had been. And it sported the Google logo on the phone itself. The Nexus was closer in design to the iPhone compared with other Android phones on the market, including the Droid. It had a 1 gigahertz processor. It had an AMOLED display with 800 by 480 resolution, had 512 megabytes of storage, and a 5 megapixel camera. This is back in the days when smartphone cameras still were just okay. This phone also would feature a pure Android build with no manufacturer or carrier add-ons, bloatware, or anything like that. It was meant to be as pure a version of Android as you could possibly find. So obviously, I needed to get one of these phones, and I did. Now, that's not to say that the launch of the Nexus One was without its problems. For one thing, Google and HTC apparently never worked out which party would actually be responsible for providing customer support. So when something went wrong with a person's Nexus One, there wasn't really anyone to turn to for help. Now, Google would eventually address this and create a customer support department, but the lack of support on launch was a bit of a misstep. And that's putting it lightly. It was actually a really big problem. Now, rather than cover all the minutiae of Android over the next few years, I figured it'd be good to skip ahead a little bit. So Android's user interface was still a bit of a dated and clunky experience. To address that, Google would hire Matthias Duarte. Duarte had previously worked for Ruben's old company, Danger. Then he went to work for Palm in the development of WebOS that was largely part of his work. And he would end up working with a team to overhaul the look and feel of Android's user interface. He would become essentially the director of user experience at Google, though his title would get juggled around in various ways in different interviews. Duarte came in just as Google was preparing to push out the gingerbread update to Android. That was version 2.3. Now, according to an interview he gave to Engadget at CES 2011, he really didn't have time to have a big impact on the operating system for gingerbread. He did get involved in a conversation around the idea of pairing the OS with a specific phone, which would end up being the Nexus S. That was a phone that was produced by Samsung. 
But Duarte would have more of an influence on Honeycomb, or Android version 3. This was a, a peculiar version of Android. It was meant specifically for tablets, not for smartphones. So it was never released for smartphones. It was only released for Android-based tablets. Unfortunately, this would also be a version of Android that essentially fizzled out. It sported a so-called holographic user interface and was the Android OS featured on the Motorola Zoom, spelled X-O-O-M. Apple had once again set the conversation by introducing the iPad tablet and succeeding where no one else had in the consumer space. The Zoom and Honeycomb were supposed to be Google's answer to that. But it wasn't a very good answer. Early reviews criticized the lack of apps optimized for Honeycomb, and this was made worse because Google had not released the code for Honeycomb the way it had for previous versions of the Android operating system. And for the most part, Android tablets and Honeycomb were seen as a misfire. Now, that being said, some of the design elements from Honeycomb were also in the next Android operating system for smartphones. That one was called Ice Cream Sandwich, or Android 4.0. Where Honeycomb and the tablets fell short, Ice Cream Sandwich seemed to succeed. Critics overall liked the updated appearance of the UI. Duarte was heavily involved in the design and implementation of Android 4.0, and his work was receiving praise from critics and users. While Android had already proven itself to be a popular platform for smartphones, it was Ice Cream Sandwich that helped establish a cohesive feel for the operating system and the user interface. You know, you could look at the iPhone UI and you could say, I get it. I get the aesthetic. I get how it all connects together. I get what the overall vision is. The same was not true for early Android phones. So this marked a change where you could actually say, oh, I see where the aesthetic is. I see where the design uh, components are with Android. Now, in our next episode, we will continue the story of Android's evolution leading up to present day. We'll talk about uh, more about Ruben's uh, controversies, which are truly terrible allegations that are, are against him. Uh, really awful stuff. So uh, I, I'm kind of glad I saved that for the next episode so I don't have to go into it right now. But it does mean that Friday's recording is going to be a doozy. Anyway, we're going to conclude Android's evolution in the next episode, uh, or at least so far. Obviously, the operating system is still very much alive and well today. And if you guys have any suggestions for future topics for Tech Stuff, you can reach out to me. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line by popping over to the social media networks that I happen to frequent, that being Facebook and Twitter. It's techstuffhsw for both of those. You can go to techstuffpodcast.com to go to our website where we have an archive of all of our past episodes. Every single one that's ever published is there. You can also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. and We greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 